it's really the emergence of paper currency or the fiat currency as we know it today, which has in some senses resulted in the need for a market for exchanging one currency for the other currency and hence foreign exchange markets. As a consumer, I have a choice of spending today versus saving it and spending it a year down the line. If the inflation is high and the interest rate is not high enough, then I know that a year down the line, I'll be able to get lesser value for my 100 rupees versus today. So I'll spend it today. And hence the interest rate has to be higher for to incentivize me to right. save it. So if US inflation rate is close to 2%, India's inflation rate is close to 5%, the inflation differential of 3% means on an average, we will depreciate by about 3% every year in terms of our exchange value. Right. And on 80, 85 or 83 rupees of um, uh, current exchange value, 3% means 2.5 rupees per year, right? And if you just extrapolate from there, you could potentially be at 100 in about 7, 8 years. Maybe 12, 13 years time, right? Hi, and welcome to another episode of Open Dialogue. In today's episode, we discuss Forex markets. We will actually take the next few episodes and talk about Forex and the implications that it has on the economy. Joining me today is a veteran in this space, Neeraj Gambhir. Uh, welcome, Neeraj. Thank you. Uh, Neeraj is the group executive and head of Treasury Markets and Wholesale Banking Products at Access Bank. Uh, Neeraj has been previously the chairman and currently a board member at uh, uh, FIMDA. He played a critical role in setting up the Clearing Corporation of India. Uh, Neeraj was also the vice president of the task force set up by the finance ministry to set up a public debt office in the country. He has played a critical role in India-Japan discussions on cooperation. And previously, Neeraj was an MD at Lehman Brothers and at Nomura uh, in, in, in the country. Uh, Neeraj, welcome to the show. Thank you, Samir. So, Neeraj, uh, to get us started, can you just help us understand what is foreign exchange and also provide some perspective on the evolution of this, uh, of this market? So Samir, let me just take you a little bit down the history lane. Uh, it'll be interesting to sort of think about what uh, is, how this entire uh, story of money and story of currency markets evolved, right? The earliest dated use of money hmm. in the history of civilization actually predates the written world. Uh, the written world. Written world. Okay. So effectively, we we used started as as a, as a civilization. We started using money almost, I think, four to five thousand years ago. Right. And over a period of last four to five thousand years, different kinds of things have acted as money, right. as we know it. Um, starting from, uh, you know, we all know about gold and silver. Right. Uh, but bronze, iron. Um, uh, animal hides right. and the most interesting example that I can think of is basically cowrie shells. Right. Uh, all of us have heard about cowrie shells right. you know, during our childhood days uh, and there are some Hindi sayings about cowrie shells as well. But cowrie shells have been used as a global form of money for almost 3000 years now. Wow. Uh, and that's the longest serving global money till the middle of 20th century. Right. Um, it was used as a money in China in Asia, in Africa, in Oceania, 
Um, and in India also, we know that fairly well, right? But I think somewhere in the middle of 20th century, uh, you know, the, I think the earlier part of the 20th century, metals started becoming a form of money. Mm -hmm. uh, then gold became predominantly the form of money and gold coins were being used. And somewhere in, in, in the 70s, uh, the form changed once again to become paper money, right? right? So today's foreign exchange markets are basically a result of the fact that we are using paper money. Right. And paper money in each country is different. Every country has its own form of paper money. They use a different sort of word for that money because gold was a gold. Cory shells were cory shells all over the world. But paper money is different in each country, right? And if you think about the fact that countries exchange commodities and services amongst themselves, that's the primary use of money where they need to exchange one country's money against the second country's money. Yeah. So, so I mean, if I were to just put this into perspective, so if in India, you, I want to buy something from you, I will give you rupees. So, rupee is the way of exchanging, you know, value between you and I. But if you were outside of India, then I need to also place a value on the rupee itself. So there is some, some kind of exchange happening between us. Yeah, I mean, just think about this. If you are in in United States, rupee is of no value to you. Absolutely. Right? You got to spend uh, in dollars. Whatever yes. you want to buy, you need dollars for that, yes. right? So if I need to buy something from you, and my currency is rupee and your currency in dollars, I need to pay you dollars yep. to be able to buy that stuff from you, yep. right? And for me to be able to pay you dollars, I need to first exchange rupees into dollars. Yep. Uh, and, and, and using those dollars, I can then buy stuff from you. The market to exchange rupees into dollars is basically foreign exchange foreign market, exchange. right? And at some point in time, they used to like some trade from some trader from the Middle East came to India and bought some spices. He would pay us in quarries, quarry shells, and then he would go maybe somewhere else and uh, sell that thing and get paid in cowrie shells. So cowrie shells became the yeah, so I think in that sense, cowrie shells, because they were a very standardized form uh, of beads, right? Uh, which were actually, so its history goes to ornaments, right? They were beads. Uh, they were liked all over the world as an ornamental value. That's how it started. But then cowrie shells became money in itself, right? right. But because it is standardized cowrie shells, um, uh, you didn't need to exchange cowrie shells for something else to be able to buy stuff from other countries. So you could actually have a global, uh, you know, trade uh, just doing a standardized form of money. But yeah. it's really the emergence of paper currency or the fiat currency as we know it today, which has in some senses resulted in the need for a market for exchanging one currency for the other currency and hence foreign exchange markets. Yeah, great. Right. So it gives a very different perspective to, you know, you hear this in Hindi films a lot, right? Do kaadi ka admi hai. A very different perspective to the yeah, but kodi. No, no, the means its value, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's worth something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh -huh. So moving on, Neeraj, like, uh, you know, when I started my career, uh, the rupee was, uh, the rupee dollar exchange rate was, I think, 46. Today it is 83. So obviously kind of the value has moved quite dramatically. So my first question to you is, what determines the value of a currency versus another? Well, the, the simplest and easiest way to think about this is effectively currency is nothing but a commodity, right? Right? Why do we need a currency? Of course, we need currency within a country to exchange goods and services amongst each other and a store of value. But when it comes to two countries uh, or exchange between two countries, it's really the demand and supply of one currency versus the other currency. 
which creates this, you know, um, uh, uh, this this sort of relative demand and supply between the two two, two currencies. So, for example, uh, in India, we are let's say let's take the example of India and US again. We are importing stuff from US. Let's right. say we are importing uh, defense equipment from US, right? So we need dollars for that. On the other hand, US is actually importing services from India. There are a lot of KPOs, etc., yep. who are based in India who are providing services to US companies. And when US companies need to pay for that, right? So they need to actually procure dollar for procure rupees for it. And hence there is a demand for rupees and there's a demand for dollars. Now what outweighs what? Uh, whether you need more dollars or whether we need the, the outsiders need more rupees determines the exchange value between the two. To right. two currencies, right? So effectively what has happened is over a period of time, over the last say 20 odd years, um, there has been relatively more demand for dollars as compared to, compared to demand for rupees, which has led to the value of rupee depreciating against dollar, right? right? So in very simple way to think about this is, this is the cumulative demand surplus that we have for other people's goods, other, other countries' goods, which has resulted in this rupees exchange rate depreciation. Now, there are several economic theories which go into this, and one of the economic theories is basically to say that if one country has a higher inflation rate as compared to the second country, uh, country A has a higher inflation rate compared to country B, then country A's currency will be basically depreciating over a period of time versus country B, yeah, yeah, right? And you know that historically India has had a far higher uh, inflation rate as compared to US. US has historically been around 2%, India has been between 4 to 5%. So one way to think about this is that the inflation difference between the two, which is about 3 to 4%, is the average annual depreciation of rupee that we should expect. And if you accumulate that over a 20 year period, you'll come to broadly the same answer, which is to say that rupees should actually halve in value versus US dollars. Sure. So, Niraj, we'll come to this uh, uh, inflation, forex, and I think there's also an interest rate angle to that's this. Right. Uh, that's right. We'll come to this in a bit. But let, let's just take the first, the demand supply equation, right? And so, when we think of demand supply of dollar versus rupee, uh, there are multiple elements. So, there is obviously the trade flow, which is import-export. There are also capital flows, which is uh, investment flows, right? Like money coming in for investments or Indians sending money out. So if you take each of these, maybe just helpful to understand like what's happening in India. And you know, so let's, let's start with trade flows, let's say. So what are big components of trade? Are we importing more, exporting more? How has that moved over time? Just Yeah, so I think trade flows are the real goods exchange that we do, right? And if you think about this over a period of time, as the Indian economy has actually grown, uh, has become, you know, more uh, uh, sort of uh, consumption-oriented, more uh, more production getting done domestically. Uh, we have uh, needed to import certain items which we don't produce domestically, and one of those items is crude oil. Right. Right. Energy needs for the country has grown, right. uh, and we don't produce enough crude domestically, so we've had to import uh, crude oil, and crude oil today becomes the largest component of what we call as our import basket. Right. Right. Then there are a few other things. For example, we also need to import certain uh, equipment which we don't produce globe, uh, locally. Simple example is smartphones. Right. Right. Uh, electronic items. This is another very large component of our imports from the uh, rest of the world. Third one is gold, I think. 
Of course, I was coming to that. So yeah. the second, uh, the third commodity in some senses in terms of value and that we Indians consume a lot is yeah. gold. Yeah. And we don't produce enough of it domestically, yeah. right? So we have to import that. So these are some of the large items that we import. There are obviously a whole bunch of items that we import. In terms of our exports, obviously historically we have been known for our exports of software. Right. I think since uh, I would say mid 90s, over the last about 30 odd years, our software export industry has grown significantly. So that's a large component of export. But what has also happened, and this is something which many people may not know, that over a period of time, we have started importing a lot of items and added value to them and produced something else and then exported that. Right. Two examples. One is Jameson Jewelry. Right. So we import a lot of raw diamonds, rough cut diamonds. We sort of polish them, we create jewelry out of them and then we export it, right? That's one example where import for the purpose of export. The second uh, uh, commodity where we've actually started to do a lot of exports is crude oil itself. Right. So today we are actually refining crude oil and then selling outside the refined products, right? So in some senses, the whole contours of, as our integration of our economy with the rest of the world has increased, the contours of what goes into our import basket and what goes into our export basket has actually substantially changed over a period of time. Uh, and both imports and exports have grown cumulatively substantially over a period of time. So today, I mean, if you look at it, the total value of imports and exports is almost $1.3 trillion. That's the amount of goods and services we are importing and exporting. Right. That's the real economy part of it. Then we come to the financial economy part of it, the financial side of it. Uh, obviously, outsiders are investing in India and they are basically bringing in dollars to make that investments. Whether they are in making, investing in the, the companies or they are investing in debt products, uh, there is an external investment that is coming into India. So that's what we call as capital flows. Right. And there is a reverse capital flow as well in the sense that Indians are also investing abroad. And the third component, which is very, very important for us as a country, is remittances. Right. You know, one of our biggest exporters people, right. human capital, right? And when people go outside, they take uh, citizenship of other countries, they work for other countries, whatever savings they have, they actually send it back to the country. Remittances, therefore, are an extremely important part of our, um, you know, sort of cross-border flows that affect the currencies, ma currency markets in a big way. As I mentioned that the demand and supply is the ultimate determinant of a value of a currency. And the best way to think of demand and supply is in terms of three, uh, three components. The first component is what we call as current account. Mm. Current account is goods and services that we export and import for the purpose of present consumption. Right. right? And India has traditionally run a current account deficit, which basically means that we are net-net importing more as compared to exporting, right? The second component of this is what is called the capital account. Capital account is the investment and financial related activity, whether it is in the form of debt, equity, or any other form. And net-net, we are net importers of capital, which means that more money comes into India, right, uh, as capital flows than what we send out. And in some senses, our deficit on current account gets balanced by the money flows by way of current account. Capital account. Uh, sorry, the capital account. And the difference between the two is what we call as balance of payments balance. Right. Right? Uh, external deficit or surplus. So while we are current account deficit, 
we actually get more inflows in the capital account and hence in general we are balance of payment surplus right right so that's the broad equation as far as the what we call as the external account right. between india and australia and Neeraj, how has this moved like the current account we've always been a current account deficit country but how has this moved over let's say the last 10 15 years uh, has the deficit narrowed has it broadened and same on the capital account side kind of how has that the nature of the of of that change so it's a very uh, uh, it's not a very uh, consistent story over a period of time uh, we used to run a fairly high current account deficit for example in 2012 13 say about 10 years ago yep. right see our current account deficit at one point was almost 80 billion dollars yep over a period of time that current account deficit has narrowed but we have had current account deficit move in a very narrow range of say 2 to 3% of gbt gdp so for example i would say broadly 1 to 3% of gdp is the range within which our current account deficit has uh, moved on the flip side uh, because we are importing capital because outsiders are investing in the country we have been a capital surplus in that sense capital has been coming into the country and that number again has varied varied over a period of time depending upon multiple factors um, including attractiveness of india as an investment destination uh, in general our capital flows have been higher and our balance of payment surplus has been about say 30 to 50 to sometimes even 70 80 billion dollars net surplus understood great uh, so neeraj moving on to kind of uh, the other direction that we started spe- speaking about which is uh, if you look at right now uh, interest rates in the us have gone up very significantly almost 500 basis points uh india not that much uh, right so does this have any impact on the capital flows and hence on the foreign exchange so uh capital flows you know you can broadly divide capital flows into two parts equity and fixed income or debt right equity capital flows are usually very sensitive to the growth prospects of a country right right uh, whether a country is doing well economically there is a lot of growth so outsiders would want to invest create capacity invest capital into this country and that sort of determines your equity flows fixed income flows or debt capital flows are largely driven by relative difference of exchange uh, of interest rates as well as the uh, the the credit rating or the or the credit standing of the country in which the flows are coming in right now the interest rate differential between india and the, the 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 next major economy or the largest economy which is the us uh, has actually been narrowing over the last i would say 3 or 3 odd years which basically has meant is that most of the capital flows that have come into the country over the last 2 to 3 years are equity flows they are not debt flows in fact there has been a very very limited amount of fixed income flows that we have seen Uh, particularly in the last two to three years, as this uh, interest rate differential has kind of narrowed. So, Neeraj, two questions from here. First is uh, uh, there seems to be a linkage between interest rates, inflation, and foreign exchange. So, if you can just explain what that is. Yeah. So, I think uh, generally in an economy, the interest rates are a function of the inflation in the economy. right and i'll again give you an example of recent past uh, in us for example the inflation was very close to zero less than 2% but fairly close to zero for a fairly long period of time therefore interest rates in us were also very close to zero for almost a very long for almost like a decade and a half now since the global financial crisis 
India on the other hand has had an average inflation rate of about 4 to 5 percent and actually even higher maybe sometimes. Correct. And that is why our interest rates are more close to 6 to 7 percent as compared to US where the interest rates were close to zero. So as the inflation goes up, the, there is a need to compensate the savers more for deferring their consumption, which is that the deferment of consumption requires compensation and that compensation is what the interest rate is. So, just to kind of uh, hmm. simplify this further, uh, as a consumer, I have a choice of spending today versus saving it and spending it a year down the line. If the inflation is high and the interest rate is not high enough, then I know that a year down the line, I'll be able to get lesser value for my 100 rupees versus today. So, I'll spend it today and hence the interest rate has to be higher for two incentivize me to right. save it. Yep. So if I want you to defer your consumption from today to a year down the line, I have to pay you adequate compensation for you to defer it. Otherwise, there is no incentive for you to defer it, right? Yep. And the deferment of consumption is nothing but the interest rates, right? Yep. So this is called a Fisher equation in some senses. Yep. Um, so as the uh, inflation goes up, the need to compensate more increases. And that's what the interest rates are and hence interest rates are required to be increased, right? Foreign exchange, if you think about this in today's context, is, it's, a, it's, it's money, it's currency, right? So therefore, there has to be an element of interest rates into it, right? right? Interest rate differential between the two countries is nothing but relative differential of um, deferment of consumption, right? And hence, it is also linked to the the, uh, the, the the inflation differential, right? So, if I were to again kind of to put it in my words, in the economy, to incentivize me, uh, the, somebody had to pay me higher interest rate. Now, if I think of myself as a global citizen and I have two quote-unquote real, real interest rates, which means interest rate minus inflation is the real interest rate, right, in some ways. Uh, now, if the US real interest rate is zero and the Indian interest rate is 2%, then I will put all my money into Indian interest rates, provided the forex is flat, which means for there not, not to be any, uh, you know, arbitrage opportunity, the rupee has to depreciate by 2%. That's right. And hence the differential in real interest rates is a predictor of future depreciation of the... Well, I would not use the word predictor of, right. uh, but in a very mathematical sense, uh, the forward value of rupee or the future value of rupee and the future value or rather the future value of rupee in terms of dollars should be equal to the interest rate differential between the, between the two countries, right. right? Otherwise, there is what is called a, an arbitrage situation right. and you have people coming in and arbitraging between the two countries, right. two currencies, right? So, this is what we call as a no arbitrage interest rate differential equation, right? right? In reality, life is a little bit more complex than this. Uh, the markets are not perfect and yeah. hence you have situations at times when the of course. Uh, forward pricing of a currency is different from the interest rate differential. Right? right. But to come back to your original question, yes, inflation, interest rate and foreign exchange values are all linked to each other. Right. Uh, foreign exchange values in the forwards are determined by the interest rate differential. Right. Interest rates themselves are a function of inflation in an economy. And hence, by corollary, the foreign exchange values are also a function of the inflation in an economy. Right. right? And also, there is something called this impossible trinity, uh, which places 
governments and central banks in some dilemma i think also so will be helpful to kind of get your yeah so impossible trinity is basically a notion that you cannot have a open uh, open country where there is full convertibility of a currency have a independent monetary policy and also have um, you know fully market determined exchange rate right right so you can't as a central bank yeah you can't control all three of them all three of them you together. can control two you the can control third two, will go haywire third will basically be so, determinant yeah. of that right. right and the impossible trinity arises when you have basically you 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 are basically trying to make sure that you have a control over your monetary policy uh, you are trying to make sure that your currency is well managed and well behaved right and you are also trying to sort of at the same time manage the capital flows into the country right uh and 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 therefore in some senses you can choose which variables of these you want to manage and which yeah. variables you want to let go of let go of right so for example if uh, let's take again an example of country and country b if country a has a very large outflow of capital from its economy right the central bank would basically want to manage the currency and not see a lot of Uh, volatility in the currency uh, but there is a capital outflow right uh, now you cannot therefore manage uh, the currency value have the capital also freely uh, movable and also determine the interest rates independently right. so in this right? case you would be forced to raise the interest rate yes so that the capital doesn't so that out. capital doesn't flow out right so in some senses the uh the, the the third variable has to be then tinkered with right right or alternatively you kind of let the capital go out but the central bank keeps buying dollars in which case the inflation will go up because there is just too much no. supply of if you let the capital go out significantly and you don't have enough reserves to manage the capital outflow there will be a very sharp depreciation in your currency right right so you can manage you can say that okay i want to have my interest rates anchored to my domestic conditions but if you are doing that if your interest rates are anchored to the domestic conditions and there is a large capital outflow then you have to let the currency go right right then you can't manage the currency at the same time right understood uh, the other question i had on the same topic was uh, uh, you know we spoke about uh, capital flows and capital inflows are of there is the fpi type of inflow which is equity markets you know and that can be hot money right it can come in go out and then there is the fdi type of inflow which is long term commitment investment in some plant machinery or whatever else how has that uh, uh, changed for the for the country and what what Im- impact does that have yeah so i think uh, in some senses you can uh, you know if you think about as an investor from outside you can come into a country and say that i want to set up a plant in the country and for me to set up a plant in the country i need to bring in money and using that money we will buy whatever capital equipment is required etc etc we will pay for workers wages you know we'll set up a company etc now once you make that investment and you are a, you know you're an equity holder in that kind of a plant it's not very easy for you to exit it right it's not something that you tomorrow decide that you know i can sell this sell this and get out which is why the foreign direct investment of this nature is usually considered to be sticky 
and longer term. Right. Because if you are doing that in a country, you better be sure that you know you are okay to be there for 5, 7, 10 years time. On the other hand, if there is a market for equities, which is what the stock market is, you can decide to buy a company shares exactly the same thing in a slightly different way. And tomorrow, if you don't like, you can just sell the shares back right. and take your money out, right? Which is why the investment in the equity markets, even though effective is the same, you're buying into a company, is considered to be something which people can get in and get out very fast. Uh, and hence, it is considered to be in some senses hot money, that if tomorrow the market conditions change, people can take their money out. FDI, on the other hand, is much more longer term. Fantastic. Last question, Neeraj, uh, for this section is uh, very recently India got included in this JP Morgan uh, bond index. Subsequently, the expectation is that a large number of or large amount of uh, foreign money will come into India to buy bonds. So, what does that mean for Indian currency? And a little clickbaity question to you, uh, does, does the INR exchange rate get to 100? in the next, let's say, few years? Well, uh, let me answer the second question first. Uh, I think if you think about exchange rate as a function of inflation differential, right, and which is what derives the interest rate differential also over a longer period of time, as long as India's inflation rate stays above, let's say, US inflation rate consistently over a period of time, there is an implied uh, sort of tendency for Indian rupee to depreciate. Right. Provided the interest rates are also like the real interest rate would kind of determine it more, right, than the well. In some senses, uh, you know, all central banks are looking at their country's inflation rate to set their interest, interest rates. rates. Okay. Therefore, I come back to say that you know, ultimately, the key economic driver is inflation differential. Sure. Okay. I mean, interest rates are a derivative of inflation differential, yep. but the core uh, economic process is the inflation. And the inflation differential is what will drive the uh, exchange values over a period of time. So if you think about this, that, and, and that remains to be seen, because we are in a regime change now. Uh, US inflation rate after almost two decades is now higher or very close to where we are uh, in terms of Indian inflation rate, fascinating, right? right? which is quite fascinating. I don't know whether it continues to be that high, or at some point in time, Fed is able to bring it back to what they're historical inflation rate is, which is about 2%. But let's say they are able to bring it down to 2%. So if US inflation rate is close to 2%, India's inflation rate is close to 5%, the inflation differential of 3% means on an average, we will depreciate by about 3% every year in terms of our exchange value. Right. And on 80, 85 or 83 rupees of um, uh, current exchange value, 3% means 2.5 rupees per year, right? And if you just extrapolate from there, you could potentially be at 100 in about 7, 8 years, maybe 12, 13 years time, right? So over a period of time, if the inflation differential sustains, could we get to 100? Answer is yes. Right. But the key question here is what will be the inflation differential between these two economies? Sure. And on the uh, inclusion in the bond, bond index? On the bond index, I think it's a, uh, it's a phenomenon. A lot of global bond investors follow what is called a passive strategy. There is indices published by some of the index providers, and these uh, investors follow these particular indices. India has so far been not been a part of these indices, which is why we haven't seen as much of flow into our fixed income markets as compared to equity markets. Now, as India gets included into these indices, 
many of these global investors will be required to buy Indian government bonds for them to make sure that they are you know, passively following those indices as those indices are you know, a combination of multiple countries' bonds. Uh, so as this inclusion gets underway over a period of next, what, two, two and a half years, we should see anywhere close to 25 to $30 billion of foreign capital into Indian bond market. And that's a unique flow, hasn't happened before. Um, now, whether this will lead to a lot of currency appreciation remains to be seen. I think it's, uh, like I said, this is one of the flows. At the end of the day, the currency market is a sum total of all the goods, services, capital, all of these flows put together. Great. Neeraj, thanks a lot for that conversation. Uh, just to kind of uh, summarize all of this, uh, Forex is basically, at the end of the day, it's a commodity. So it's driven by, the value is driven by demand and supply. Demand and supply is driven by trade flows and capital flows. For India, we've been a current account deficit country, uh, we've been a capital account surplus country, and that's kind of determined how the Forex has moved. Uh, also, we spoke about the impossible trinity and the relationship between Forex rates, interest rates, and inflation. And uh, kind of very, very simplistically put, the differential in, in inflation between two countries uh, should determine the depreciation of the Forex over time because that then uh, determines the uh, Forex flows. Rupee could very well get to 100, uh, maybe in the next 8, 10 years. And there are a bunch of things which will determine this, including the inclusion of the bond market index. Fascinating conversation, Neeraj. Thanks a lot for, for your time. Pleasure. Thank you for listening into this episode of Open Dialogue. I hope you enjoyed this as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. We are overwhelmed by the response that we've received and really look forward to your comments and feedback. Do like and subscribe to our channel to keep track of new episodes that are coming through. Thank you.